Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. She said, we love both of them. Kathy's gone. We love Bob. We need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. On the Tuesday that Durst claimed to have called the officer in Connecticut, there is no record of such a call. Does not exist, did not happen. However, there were four collect calls that were made and accepted from Southern New Jersey. The payphones were all adjacent to the Pine Barrens, a notorious mafia burial ground made famous by the Sopranos. While Durst toiled in New York in the wake of Kathy's disappearance, Susan Berman moved to Los Angeles. That would be the peak of Susan's life. She was successful. She was marrying somebody she cared about. And from that day forward, her life was going to head in a downhill spiral. Now in late 1999, New York State police detectives secretly began reinvestigating Kathy's disappearance. Multiple times over the years, Susan Berman discussed the fact that she had made the call. She said, I did something today and did it for Bobby. And then her next statement was, if anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it. Something was not going to happen to her for another approximately 18 years. People are going to find me guilty. I mean, I've, I've been guilty for years in the newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're really going to find me guilty. So what I did was I decided I got to go into hiding. Despite having never been contacted by investigators, Susan lied to Bob and told him that she had been contacted and planned to speak with the investigator. Now, how do we know this? You know this directly from Bob Durst. I think, Bob, that, that you drove down to Los Angeles, that you drove down there, and, um... Killed Susan? I do. Killed back? That was going to show that she oh. was murdered by somebody who she truly trusted, who she went into her home, and who she had no fear of whatsoever. Lewin tells the jury that the evidence will show that after pulling the trigger, the murderer sent a letter to the Beverly Hills Police Station. So inside the envelope was this cryptic note. And all it says is 1527 Benedict Canyon. And it has the word cadaver. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. 
As Deputy District Attorney John Lewin speaks, Durst leans forward, his eyes wide. Occasionally he scratches his ear or stretches his arms, but every gesture is painfully slow, like he's moving through wet cement. Meanwhile, the prosecution is brisk. Lewin's words keep a healthy pace and his cadence pushes the presentation forward at a clip. The multimedia also helps to break up the soliloquy. So far, the prosecution has played over 70 recordings, a mix of video and audio. Over half of the clips have featured Robert Durst himself. Durst interviewed during filming for The Jinx, Durst interviewed by Lewin in New Orleans, and Durst giving DVD commentary for the film All Good Things. The ubiquity of Durst's voice in the prosecution's opening serves to underscore Lewin's assertion that the most damning evidence in this trial will come from Robert Durst himself. It's unclear how all this footage of himself affects Durst. He makes no expression when he watches himself on video and remains impassive when Lewin turns his own words against him. John Lewin plays another clip of Durst during his interviews for the Jinx. In this clip, Durst expresses how he felt about Janine Pirro reopening the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance. It blew me away. Absolutely, totally blew me away. I was concerned when the uh, Joel Cohn said that she's gone, you know, really far. DAs don't usually start uh, making um, announcements in the newspaper when the police haven't even charged you with anything. And he said that she's going to go and do something. Durst claims that he found out about the reinvestigation into Kathy's case on October 31st, 2000. But the prosecution asserts that Durst found out several days earlier. On October 23rd, this is the 11 days before um, Mr. Durst allegedly found out that they were reinvestigating his wife, his parents, he wrote himself a check for $9,000. Now this would be the first of what would prove to be a pattern of what is called structuring money that Mr. Durst uh, would do. So on October 30th, 2000, this is the day before he allegedly found out about the reinvestigation, Mr. Durst executed the following document. This is a durable power of attorney that gave uh, Mr. Durst, the woman who would become his wife, this gave her power of attorney in essence over uh, his money. The woman to whom Durst gave his power of attorney and who would later become his wife was Deborah Lee Chariton, a polished real estate professional who was introduced to Durst by Nick Chavin in 1988. Deborah dated Robert in the 90s, but the pair didn't live together, preferring short visits whenever Durst came to Manhattan from South Salem. According to Durst, he found out about the reinvestigation into Kathy's disappearance after giving Deborah his power of attorney. It was in the middle of this turmoil that Susan Berman sent Durst a letter. Her financial situation had become dire and she was facing eviction if she didn't pay her rent. On November 9th, Durst sent Susan a check for $25,000. Lewin tells the jury that this was not the last check that Durst sent Susan before her murder. He plays a clip from the Jenks interviews and then, so in November of 2000, did you send her this $25,000? Yeah, I sent her, what I'd been sending her frequently, periodically, the $25,000. And I sent her another one when the car broke. I think right, right within a couple of weeks. 
So basically, you sent her fifty altogether. Yes, I sent her two right twenty-five thousand dollar checks. Right. Now on November eleventh, two thousand, this is when the media began reporting the reinvestigation. Frightened by the media attention and the possibility of being charged with murder, Durst decided to go into hiding. He explained his thought process during his interviews for the Jinx. The whole idea of being charged with something, having people invest, and not so much invest, but, but that people are going to find me guilty. I mean, I, I've been guilty for years in the newspapers, etc., etc. Now they're really going to find me guilty. And if they don't find me guilty, I'm going to be in jail, with, you know, on... on whatever, before the trial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I did was I decided I got to go into hiding. And I had an apartment in Dallas. I'd been to Galveston, Texas a bunch of times. And it seemed like about as good a place to hide as there was in the world. Durst rented a tiny studio apartment in Galveston for $300 a month. The space was cramped. The kitchen consisted solely of a worn-down stove, and the bathroom was barely big enough to fit both a shower and a toilet. But Durst appreciated the anonymity that came with a low-rent lifestyle. He went out of his way to keep his identity a secret. I didn't tell anybody my name was Robert Durst. Right. I didn't use my checks, my credit cards, my telephone, any of that. Mr. Durst goes to Galveston, he realizes... I don't want to use my name. I don't want to use my phone. I want to be invisible in Galveston. And in an attempt to hide his true identity, what he did is something the evidence will show that he does frequently in his life. He assumed somebody's identity, somebody that he knew. In this case, he disguised himself as a woman, Dorothy Siner. And this was a classmate of his from high school. This is a real person. Lewin tells the jury that Dorothy never gave Robert permission to use her name. Once again, Durst behaved as though the rules didn't apply to him. Mr. Durst has a very masculine-sounding voice. He's got a deep voice that you all heard, and obviously um, it's not really uh, consistent with being a, a woman. So he decided that he would pretend to be you. Robert Durst explained the logic of disguising himself as a mute woman during his interviews with Jarecki. It's not easy to disguise yourself. I'm a guy. So what is a guy going to do? I mean, I could grow a beard and a mustache, and I'd periodically worn a beard and a mustache in New York City, but I can't grow a beard and a mustache now. Can't do it by tomorrow morning. I would have to get some kind of a thing to put on my face, and I just couldn't imagine that any of that would act vaguely real. I just came up with the idea of a wig. Went to Dallas, went to a wig store, tried on the wig, and I said, gosh, this looks pretty, pretty, pretty good. I got the hair here and the hair here, uh, a good shave. I'm going to be looking sort of like a woman, or if not just like a woman, close enough. So on December 4, 2000, this is when the story of the reinvestigation went national with a People magazine article. On December 6, 2000, <clears throat> concerned that he was about to be arrested, Mr. Durst took a 36-hour Greyhound bus ride to New York City. So instead of getting on a plane, which he usually did, he basically took a very circuitous route because he thought he was about to be arrested in Harvard County. On December 11, 2000, 
uh, in the middle of all this, Durst decides to marry his longtime girlfriend, uh, Debbie Cherry. The wedding was officiated by a rabbi that Deborah and Robert picked out of the phone book. The ceremony was held in an office building. There were no guests invited, and the couple didn't spend the night together. Robert was later quoted in the New York Post calling it, quote, a marriage of convenience, end quote. As Durst went into hiding in Galveston, detectives continued to investigate all leads on Kathy's newly reopened case. Susan Berman was of extreme interest to the detectives, but they were waiting to contact her very near the end because of the closeness of the relationship. Now, very important to note, as Detective Sarah can tell you, they never made contact with Susan Berman prior to her murder. However, despite having never been contacted by investigators, Susan lied to Bob Durst and told him that she had been contacted and plan to speak with the investigators. Now, how do we know this? We know this directly from Bob Durst. But you heard from her that she had been contacted by the police? Yeah. She said, the Los Angeles police contacted me. They want to talk to me about Kathy Durst's disappearance. Now, the evidence will demonstrate that it was that conversation, that statement by Susan Berman to Bob Durst that sealed her fate. Lewin later plays a clip of a Durst interview with filmmaker Andrew Jarecki about the issue of Susan speaking with the police regarding Kathy's disappearance. Did you have any feeling about what she was doing in talking to the police? Did you feel like she was... She said, Bobby, it's going to be best for both of us if I, I just talk to them. Said, All right, what am I going to say? No. Was, was there anything that Susan knew about you, your history, Kathy, no Kathy, whatever it was, was there anything that Susan knew as your sort of confidant that you would have been uncomfortable with her telling the police? You know, we had lots of private things, but none of it had anything to do with Kathy. I mean, when Kathy was, you know, going bananas, we would talk about Kathy all the time. I couldn't imagine her talking to the police about that, uh, just sitting here right now. But the police want to talk to me. I'm just going to talk to them. Is that all right? And like, like that was the conversation. Do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then um, something happens to Susan then. Um, she she gets me. murdered. She got murdered. That's how Durst described the something that happened to Susan. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, on December 12, 2000, we are now on the countdown. Susan is going to get murdered the night of the 22nd. Durst bought a one-way ticket to New York City to Eureka, California, with a transfer in San Francisco. And this was for travel on December 14th. Durst didn't take those flights to San Francisco and Eureka, but he used the tickets five days later on December 19th. Lewin explains to the jury that Durst owned a home in Trinidad 
near Eureka, California, and that he kept a Ford Explorer in the airport parking lot that he used when he was staying in the area. For the next four days, Durst's phone records show that he made calls in Eureka, Trinidad, and Garbersville, California. Well, Eureka's the airport. Trinidad's where he, where he lives. What's Garbersville? John Lewin informs the jury that Garbersville is a town 90 miles south of Trinidad. So basically, if you are taking the 101 south from Eureka, Trinidad, you could be going to San Francisco, or you could be going to Los Angeles because San Francisco is in between. Now, Mr. Durst was asked about this trip and what he was doing during the 2015 interview uh, with me in New Orleans. So during this interview, Mr. Durst acknowledged that he had originally said that he'd been in California for a couple of weeks. But, but if you agree it was very strange for you to be going out here. When you were asked about it, you said you were out here for a couple of weeks. But yeah, that's what I thought. Right, but you were only out there for four days. Okay. And, and you agree you didn't take four-day trips to San Francisco back then. Not from New York. Right. No. So, so as you sit here, it's fair to say you really can't explain it. I can't explain it. Now, vehicle records also demonstrate that the mileage on Durst Ford Explorer was consistent with a round trip between Eureka and Susan's home in Los Angeles. Now, how do we know that? So here's what the evidence is going to show. The distance from Garbersville to Beverly Hills round trip is roughly 1,150 miles. Lewin apprises the jury that on September 15th of 2000, Durst Ford Explorer was serviced at the car dealership, and at that time it had 30,378 miles. Seven months later, on April 20th, 2001, Durst's car was sold with a recorded mileage of 31,847. That's a difference of 1,469 miles, despite the fact that Robert Durst barely used his car. So what the evidence is going to show is, is that all of a sudden, Mr. Durst has this giant amount of miles that are put on his car. Now, we know that he drove the car down to Garbersville, and we don't have any explanation why he's going. The evidence is going to demonstrate that he drove the car down to Los Angeles, murdered Susan Berman, and then drove it back up to San Francisco. Now, we know that Bob Durst went to the chicken counter the night of the 23rd at San Francisco International Airport, and he purchased a ticket on a red-eyed flight at the counter, departing two hours later in New York City. We know that he also left the Ford Explorer in San Francisco. Now, the evidence can show that Bob Durst doesn't buy tickets at the counter, and he never flies on the red eye. Now, he was confronted with this during the interview in New Orleans in 2015. I think, Bob, that, that you drove down to Los Angeles, that you drove down there, and... Um, Killed Susan, I do. drove back. And, and, and so the other thing is, you know, you don't take red-eye flights very often. Did you know that? Very infrequently. So I was trying to figure out, and usually you don't buy your tickets right at the counter. Would you agree? Usually I make reservations. And, and, um... So what made you 
Why didn't you go back to Eureka? What were you doing that made you get down to San Francisco? And why? It just doesn't make sense. I was trying to understand that. Yeah, 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 I hear you. I hear you. I'm just not going to be able to answer that because okay. I just don't know. Okay, that's, listen, that's fair. Um, but, but you agree, it, it's hard to explain. Unusual. While Durst claims that he doesn't remember the purpose of his trip to Trinidad, the prosecution alleges that Susan was expecting him to visit her in Los Angeles. So in the weeks leading up to Durst's trip to California, Susan told at least two of her friends that he would be coming down to Los Angeles over the holidays. This is Susan's friend, Al Cleveland. You're not going to hear Mr. Cleveland live. You're going to hear um, videotape testimony. Mr. Cleveland is going to testify that Susan referred to herself as his Jewish mother. Al was interested in writing, and Susan was assisting him in his efforts. She said, Bobby was coming. Bobby, it's going to be a lot of fun. He's going to take us all out to dinner and have a big party. She said, Bobby was coming. Bobby is going to be a lot of fun. He's going to take us all out to dinner. We're going to have a big party. And um, did she say... He was coming to Los Angeles? Yes. That's Deputy District Attorney Habib Balian asking Cleethan, did she say he was coming to Los Angeles? Did she say when he was coming? Around the holidays. Around the holidays. Around the holidays. Okay. And by the holidays, uh, what months oh. are we referring to? That's yeah, Christmas. That's Christmas. Well, Richard Markey was another friend of Susan's, and the evidence is going to show that other than her killer, Mr. Durst, he was the last person to see her alive. On the night of December 22, 2000, Richard and Susan went to a restaurant on the 3rd Street Promenade in Santa Monica. Susan discussed her career. She was in negotiations on a project with a TV network and would hopefully be paid soon. After dinner, Susan and Richard saw a movie, Best in Show. Susan liked it. She thought it was funny. The feature ended around 9 or 10 o'clock. Susan dropped Richard off at his house and she went home. For the rest of the story is going to be presented circumstantially. But the circumstantial evidence is going to show that Susan went back home, changed her clothing, and then at some time, either late that night or early in the morning, Bob Durst showed up at her doorstep. She led him into the house. She turned around to go deal with her dogs. He pulled out a nine millimeter handgun and he executed her. Shot her point blank the back of her head. The evidence is gonna show that Susan has no defensive wounds. The evidence is gonna show that she was murdered by somebody who she truly trusted, who she lived into her home, and who she had no fear of whatsoever. According to the prosecution, the killer executed Susan Berman, but they wanted her body to be found. Lewin tells the jury that after pulling the trigger, the murderer sent a letter to the Beverly Hills Police Station. So inside the envelope was this cryptic note. And all it says is 1527 Benedict Canyon, and it has the word cadaver. cadaver, not dead body or corpse, 
the killer used a clinical term for Susan's remains, a term that someone might hear from a med student on a daily basis. According to the prosecution, when Robert Durst wrote that note about Susan's body, he stole a word from the vocabulary of the first person that he killed, Kathy Durst. Susan Berman was purportedly Robert's second victim. And according to Lewin, Durst's third victim was a man whose cadaver Robert Durst has admitted to dismembering. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. On the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Morris Black had opinions about anything and he would express them to anybody and he wanted you to get into a conversation with him and if you didn't want to talk to him about whatever it was, he, he, he would argue with you. So he had trouble making friends. <laughs> That's probably the biggest understatement I've heard in the world. Morris Black made no friends with nobody because he made everybody, he tried, he made everybody angry. So now he knows it's Robert Durst and he knows he's from New York and he knows he's got a lot of money. He said word. The jury found that he's innocent. No, they found him not guilty. Okay. Not fine. Not much serious. Oh, oh, it's different. Okay, now, 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 now. Morris, get out of here, period. I'm leaving, get out. I don't ever want to see you again. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Terracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Taracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.